everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Well, good morning. We're going to dive right into it today. I want you all to grab your Connect cards and a pen. And if you would, just uh, take your Connect card, bend it back so that you can see the uh, Get Involved and Respond section. It's going to be our lined paper. We're going to ask a question to get us started today, and I want you to think about it for just a second. But before I ask the question, I want to put a few things off limits. Uh, I don't want a Christian answer to this, okay? So no, like Pat, you know, I know this is the right answer. I'm going to write down the right answer. Uh, and as, as you think about it, there, your thoughts are going to probably come from two places. It's either going to come from your head down, like I know this is what I want my answer to be, and then also from the gut, it's going to bubble up. And uh, I don't want you to judge one or the other. I just want you to kind of notice what they are, and then we'll write them down, okay? So just for like 10 seconds, here's the question. What is your arena? What are you living for? Or, I mean, here's what it is, right? What are you doing here? Like really at the deepest level, what are you doing here? So 10 seconds, just let whatever thoughts come into your head. Okay, now those pens you grabbed, write a few things down. Maybe it's a word or a phrase. Again, the things that came from your head, the things that you, some people would call aspirational desires, like this is what I aspire to be, but then also what are the things that match more the reality that's in your heart or in your gut? Write those things down for me a second. That shouldn't take more than 10 seconds. Don't overthink it. Okay, this is one of those like think, write, share exercises. We don't always do this at the vineyard, but I want to hear from you some of the things that you wrote down. Let's hear it. No one knows why they're here? To see tomorrow. What is it about tomorrow, Jeff? More life. Anybody else? Yeah. No idea. That's an honest answer, right? Okay, someone. Yeah. Hope. Pass on hope. Now that's a Christian answer. Didn't I say no Christian answers yet? Who said? <laughs> Share God's love. Enjoy. To enjoy life. Recharge. Okay. What was that? Help others. Good. 
Now, was there any, uh, any things that kind of came up for your gut that you thought, oh, I don't, I don't want that to be true, but it's true of me? Answers. It's like the search for truth, right? Relationships. Well, my wife wouldn't answer this, and you know that because she just said relationships, but I thought maybe somebody out there would say coffee. <laughs> she, that's her there. Uh, it's maybe not the primary thing, but like some of us live for coffee every morning. Come on, let's be honest. What's the, what do you wake up and what do you want? What is that thing inside of you that you're seeking? It's coffee. And uh, my wife really, really loves coffee from this place called the Farmhouse. She likes it more than Starbucks. Uh, if you've never been there, it's down in Downingtown. But uh, see, I grew up on a farm. Uh, and so out of protest, this does not look like a farmhouse to me. Farmhouses are like uh, very compartmentalized, little rooms. They're drafty. The ceilings are low. There's like stuff, clutter everywhere. And this is like wide open and, and, and it's really a cool aesthetic. It's, it's not just good coffee. It's a great place to sit and gather and talk. And, uh, and so I call it, I don't call it the farmhouse in protest. I call it the barn house because it feels a little more like a barn. And I, since I grew up on a farm, we had a barn and I would play in the hayloft and, you know, it's like the high ceiling and there's this, you do, you walk in and there's this feeling of of an expanse, kind of like in this room, you're like, whoa, the ceiling, it just keeps going, right? So anyway, uh, to understand where this is going, you have to understand that my wife is uh, an Enneagram One. Now, this is a personality type, and if you're not into the Enneagram, that's okay. Some of you know what your number is and know who everybody else is, but let me describe the Enneagram One, the performer, or sorry, the, <laughs> the reformer. The performer is the three. The reformer, she's a type one. Uh, or sometimes called the perfectionist. The Enneagram Ones are, listen to this, conscientious and ethical with a strong sense of right and wrong. They are teachers, crusaders, and advocates for change, always striving to improve things, but afraid of making a mistake. Well-organized, orderly, and fastidious, they try to maintain high standards. You know, if you know, if you know Allison and you love Allison, you love and appreciate some of that, uh, striving for excellence and standing up for what's right. So whenever I say barn house, she always corrects me to farmhouse, and it's this running thing. So on Friday, we were taking a day off, uh, and I woke up, and I said, hey, babe, you want to go to the barn house with me? And she said, you want to go to the barn house with me? And I said, ha, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> got you to say barn house. I've been going on and on, but did you, did you catch actually what was underneath that? In her heart, she said this, uh, what was there? You want to go to the farmhouse with me? There's this thing that we're all living for. The arena that we're all called into is to be connected. In fact, Brene Brown in this book, Daring Greatly, uh, says this, the surest thing I took away from my BSW, that's her bachelor's in social work, my MSW, my master's in social work, and PhD is this. Connection is why we're here. We are hardwired to connect with others. 
It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. So this book, Daring Greatly, I have told everybody I've met, this is a great read, and I, I actually, I was giving it to someone this morning because if you're new here, uh, we have a free copy of this book for you. I was telling the individual, I said, it's not a Christian book. In fact, it's PG-13. But I think it's one of the most important books uh, that have been written in the last 10 years, and it's by an author, and I've said this before, Brene Brown, who is probably better known by her TED Talk, uh, which is the second most watched TED Talk in all, uh, on their website. And the, the title of this book, Daring Greatly, if you were here for the video, comes from a speech by Theodore Roosevelt uh, that has been come, become known as The Man in the Arena. And we're going to be tracking through this book for the next couple of weeks. But the idea that we were made for connection, I think, is something that resonates with each of us. Whether we were able to express it, right, in a reflective exercise or not. And I think one of the reasons that we know that that's true, that we were made for connection, is because of the stories that we're drawn to. Um, there's this high school girl that I've gotten to know over the last year who is really into Stranger Things. Have you seen this TV show? Uh, if you've seen the, it's a Netflix series. Um, that one actually I think is rated PG, so it's, anyway, it's pretty intense. But the, uh, the premise is that we're set in the 80s, and I think what would a teenage girl care about all this kind of 80s lore? You know, if you, if you remember the 80s, there's these like weird things like phones on the wall and wallpaper. Uh, that, that you would never want to see in real life, but you remember, like, oh, yeah, the pink stripes, those were in. In fact, I know those were in because we took some of that pink striped wallpaper off of our walls in the house that we bought last year. But anyway, why would a teenage girl who doesn't remember the 80s at all be drawn to Stranger Things? I had to think about that, and I realized it's because it's actually not a show about the 80s. Neither is it really a show about the strange things that happen to this little town in, I can't remember, Midwest somewhere. It's, it's a show about friendship. It's actually about this troop of kids who, yes, there's a monster out there that's trying to eat them, but it's about this troop of kids, and it's all about what does it mean to belong to this group, and what are you willing to do for the others in your group of friends? What are you willing to accept? And, and, like, these kids are not the cool kids by any means, right? If you've seen the show. I don't know if there's any nerds in the room, but, like, these are the super nerds. Yeah, there's a few nerds. Um, and it, it, they don't, like, bond together because, wow, there's something to be gained from a popula popularity standpoint, right? These kids are bonded together by friendship and, could I even say, love. And so what we're drawn to in a show like Stranger Things is the love and the friendship that it displays. N name a few of your other favorite shows. This, like, why do we exist in the world is tough. But you guys know some of your favorite shows, right? Or TV programs or, or books. What are they? This is, this is Us. Okay, yeah. Obviously, it's all about relationship and friendship and love, right? What else? What? Heartland. I don't know that one. It's, that's a show about horses, I think, right? I'm sure, that, I'm sure there's relational dynamics in that show. It's a ranch farm. Yeah. Breaking Bad? I don't... I, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is... Oh, at the end of the day, it's about this family and uh, what, what destructive behavior does to right, alienate you from family. 
And what uh, constructive behavior, right? You see one character demise and push his family away and another character rise and actually find community, right? That's what that show's about. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. It's about Samwise Gamgee and Gandalf and Frodo and the friendships. It's about Harry and Hermione and uh, all the rest of the crew, Dumbledore and everybody. It's, it's really about the relationships. And Jesus' words, or the way Jesus says this, comes to us from John 13, verse 34. And you can turn there if you want. He says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. This is like the classic love like Jesus passage. And you think, wow, that's super simple. And I was thinking the same thing when I uh, chose this passage because uh, I had a different passage figured, picked out. And it was like complex and I was going to show you all how smart I was. And yesterday at about 10 a.m., I just felt like God was leading me to this passage. So um, just understand that though simple and though not complex, this is not an easy passage. It's a profound passage, and I feel like it's, it's what God wants us uh, to dwell on here today. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love one another. And this is, uh, this is a lot easier said than done. I was talking to uh, an individual, a guy, a married man this uh, past month, and this, I tell the story not because his, what he was sharing was unique, but because it's been uh, a conversation I've had over and over and over with, with married men across the last several years. And it has to do with the, the realization that now, you know, we've been married for a while, and my wife wants to have connection, and I want it too, and I'm not sure how to do it. Like, I'm able to tell her how I'm feeling, but usually only after I've been, like, uh, taken to the end of my rope and I get angry and frustrated. So rather than be in a moment of connection where I'm sharing what's going on inside, I'm, I'm reacting in anger, right? I'm frustrated. It becomes a defense mechanism instead of a, a relational connection, right? Does this uh, resonate to any of you? And as we were talking, um, I was thinking about how, and I'm not perfect at this, how I learned to kind of share what is on the, what's going on in the inside. And it didn't come from that farmhouse I grew up in. And I'm not saying my parents didn't love me. They did. And I am, I am grateful for my upbringing. But my, my mom and dad were Dutch. And if you know any Dutch people, like, they're not the most emotionally in touch people that you'll ever meet. Besides being like very cheap and frugal, uh, they can be somewhat cold and uh, and and standoffish. So like I didn't grow up with a lot of a lot of hugs in my family, not a lot of uh, words of affirmation, not a lot of encouragement. Uh, which later on, my dad and mom both uh, kind of learned how to do. But but I realized I learned how to be vulnerable. And I learned how to relationally and emotionally connect, uh, not, not by my personality and neither by my upbringing. It happened uh, when I turned uh, like 18 or so, when I, when I left my high school and I made this new group of friends. And they modeled it for me. 
And I'd never really experienced this before, but I was able to reveal my whole self to them. Like, I was, I was a nerd, and I was, I was really into Bible interpretation. I know that that might sound strange, but it's true. So I would talk about uh, weird things like eschatology or the end, you know, like that's discussion of the end times, like where is this all headed anyway? And these friends I made uh, embraced that and accepted that in me. And uh, man, that was a time in my life where everybody was falling in love, it seemed, like hard. And uh, we would just, we would talk about these feelings we had, and it was, it was the sort of thing where I, I, could, I would talk for 20 minutes, and my friend would just listen and affirm and, and encourage, and actually it wouldn't say a whole lot. And then I would stop, and then the friend, uh, he or she, would, would talk for 20 minutes. And maybe it's because we were driving to Chicago, or maybe it's because we were, you know, sitting in our dorm basement at 2 a.m., but I learned that the way to uh, develop the connection or the vulnerability that is the catalyst for connection is, is to find spaces that are safe and where you'll be accepted no matter what. And sometimes I think our spouses can be the most difficult uh, dynamic for that because, like, there's some baggage there a lot of times. And so I don't... I don't have a prescription, but as I realize my own story, I've, I've realized that what we're trying to do, in a sense, at a, as a large group here, but more practically in the small groups, right, the life groups that we have, is to always set aside time to share how we're doing. In fact, the life groups that we're part of, we usually make sure that the units, whether you're married or just dating, like separate, because usually, uh, or I would say uh, certainly, there will be a time where the, the hardest thing in your life is that significant other that you have, and you need to have space to share like, in safety and in confidentiality and in trust where you will uh, be heard and not, uh, and not judged. And one of the things I think that shows or, or, or at least communicates judgment is right when people who you're sharing with try to fix it or try to tell you how you should be living your life instead of the way that you are living your life or tell you how you should be feeling instead of the way that you are feeling. And so uh, that's, that's basically all to say that to love each other includes this, this openness or this vulnerability. Like, um, I've, I've maybe mentioned this person before, but uh, Susan Collins, who wrote a book called Fierce Conversation, says that conversation is the relationship. Like, think about a relationship without conversation, without sharing, without vulnerability, it's, there's no substance to it. Like, I like to do fun things with this person will only last so long, or I'm really attracted to this person physically will only last so long if there's not uh, deep emotional connection and vulnerability. And so I wanna, uh, again, go back to this, this Daring Greatly book and uh, just read a little bit of an excerpt. And uh, if you didn't gather this before, this book is written by uh, a researcher, actually. So this isn't just, it's not a self-help book. Uh, it's a little bit different than that. And nor is it just kind of a fluffy, I thought to myself one day that it would be good to be vulnerable. Like this, this uh, woman has interviewed 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and, and compiled data and come to some, I think, very helpful conclusions that will help us unpack Jesus' command to love one another. And so she describes this, uh, this wholehearted living, if you will, this way. She says, wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection to wake up in the morning and think, no matter what gets done and how much, life, how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night and thinking, yes, I am imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I am also brave and worthy of love and belonging. This definition is based on these fundamental ideals. Number one, love and belonging are irreducible needs of all men, women, and children. We're hardwired for connection. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. The absence of love, belonging, and connection always leads to suffering. Right? That's pretty straightforward. We've kind of said that already. Number two, if you roughly divide the men and women I've interviewed into two groups, those who feel a deep sense of love and belonging and those who struggle for it, this is where it gets really interesting. There's only one variable that separates the groups. Those who feel lovable, who love, and who experience belonging simply believe they are worthy of love and belonging. They don't have better or easier lives. They don't have fewer struggles with addiction or depression, and they haven't survived fewer traumas or bankruptcies or divorces. But in the midst of all these struggles, they have developed practices that enable them to hold on to the belief that they are worthy of love, belonging, and even joy. Did you hear that? It's not that the people who experience uh, love and belonging happen to have met better people or have had less suffering in their life. It's this inner belief of worthiness, which is in John 13, and we'll get there. Number five, and you might be thinking, you skipped number three and four. Well, I'm not going to read the whole book today. I want, you all, I want you guys to read the book. And uh, I, I said this in my video blog and the weekly email, but one of the reasons I think it's a great deal to do like a summer reading series is because I know you guys are all going to be on vacation <laughs> sometime in the next three weeks. And this way, you can track along with what we're talking about. So anyway, number five, the wholehearted identity, uh, the wholehearted identify vulnerability as the catalyst for courage, compassion, and connection. In fact, the willingness to be vulnerable emerged as the single clearest value shared by all of the women and men whom I would describe as wholehearted. They attribute everything from their professional success to their marriages, to their proudest parenting moments, to their ability to be vulnerable. So two uh, big ideas that I want you to just uh, pull out of there. First, those who experience love and belonging are those who feel worthy of it. And number two, vulnerability is the catalyst for courage, compassion, and connection. And Jesus says, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You've probably heard this passage before, right? It's, it's very common. Have you ever noticed where it is placed in the Gospel of John? If you guys have your Bibles open, just take a look up above. What's the, the heading above it? Uh, you find that this is act, the setting here is the day or the night even before Jesus is betrayed. And so Jesus has gathered together a few of his closest friends and he's doing uh, what we will actually do uh, here in a few minutes 
the, the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, where in the other Gospels, the other accounts that we hear about Jesus, uh, it's said that he, you know, says, this is my body and this is my blood and take these to remember me. In John, he does something a little different. He washes his disciples' feet, which John actually says this is like the full expression of Jesus' love. So what does it mean to love like Jesus? But then, right after that, we have this interaction between Jesus and Judas. And you all know who Judas is, right? He's the guy who betrays Jesus. He's the guy who goes to the Roman soldiers and to the Jewish leaders and says, he's over there, you can have him. And then, right, ultimately, he's tried, crucified, dies, and is buried. So right before Jesus gives the command to love one another, he brings up this idea of betrayal, right? What happens right after this command in John? You might be thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting. What's really interesting is right after Jesus commands um, his disciples to love one another as I have loved you, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you too will betray me, right? Peter doesn't betray Jesus to death, but he betrays him in the sense that he denies Jesus. Uh, when, when push comes to shove, when Jesus is surrounded by his enemies, Peter says, I don't even know that guy. I don't want to be associated with him, right? Like this is, this is the kind of betrayal that uh, you hope, I hope never happens to you by a friend. And it's profound, I think, that Jesus puts this command to love one another sandwiched in between the topic of betrayal. Not just the, like, obviously bad guy, Judas, but between the betrayal of the bad guy and, like, if you read the Bible, like, one of the really good guys, Peter. You know, this, Jesus loves both these guys, really, but you see Peter go on and do all these amazing things for Jesus. And in the middle, Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. You see, even Jesus' love has this level of vulnerability that I don't think we often see. The vulnerability to put himself out there, to wash his disciples' feet, all 12 of them, probably the women too, and then to be betrayed by each and every one of them. Jesus' love is vulnerable. Jesus puts himself out there, and this happens other times in in the New Testament as well. He gets rejected, right? And that's, that's really what makes love and vulnerability so hard, isn't it? At one point, uh, Brene Brown def describes, uh, defines vulnerability as um, the, the, the thing, we show up and let ourselves be seen, right? Like she says, this is daring greatly, but to, to show up and let yourself be seen means that you might be seen and rejected. To love like Jesus takes incredible risk, and it takes incredible guts. To step into the arena, as Theodore Roosevelt puts it, means that you will know both victory and defeat. It's the one who sit in the sits in the stands. It's the critic 
who knows neither victory or defeat because they're not in the arena. They're not making those deep connections with people. They're not risking rejection and love, victory and defeat. And if you have ever loved anybody, if you have ever gone anywhere like relationally, you know that there is mud and blood and dust that you will be covered in because it's only a matter of time before they hurt you. So to love like Jesus means to put yourself out there, let yourself be hurt, to get up and forgive and let yourself be hurt again, to be betrayed, to get up and let yourself be, you know, kicked and, and scarred. To love like Jesus, this is, this is pretty serious stuff. It's not, and it's yet, it's the thing that we are all made for the thing that we all know we want, the reason like, uh, that we step into the arena. It is why we're here, to love one another. So, so what keeps us from stepping into the arena? Uh, Brene Brown uses the word scarcity, and I think it's actually, if I could put a little more language to that, it's some combination of like, shame and fear that keeps us from living vulnerably, right? from daring greatly as she says. Um, but, but to unpack this scarcity in ourselves, uh, there's really two questions, and I want to ask you those two questions again. If you would grab those little uh, connect cards where it says respond, you've got the lined paper. And I, I'm not going to push you as hard to, res to, to answer this if you don't want. But this idea that there is scarcity in our lives keeps us out of the arena keeps us out of living a life that really matters. And the first statement or question is, how would you fill in this statement? I never have enough blank. What is it? Just write it down. Okay, tell me what you wrote. Someone said time. Confidence, knowledge, time. What was that? Patience. Somebody? Support. Okay, let's just stop right there. These are kind of largely, right, this idea of I never have enough is an external reality of scarcity. Uh, taps into the fears that we have. And uh, I put up a couple of my own, like money, time, influence. I never have enough friends. Like we, we have this belief that there's a not, not enough of it out there, right? But then there's a deeper belief that cuts right into us that the reality is that I also uh, don't feel like I am enough. And so how would you fill in this blank? I am never blank enough. 10 seconds, write down what, you th what you're thinking. I am never blank enough. What would you say? Compassionate, patient. I'm never good enough. I'm never brave enough. I'm not loving enough. I've got a couple that I came up with. 
I'm never good enough, I'm never giving enough, I'm never successful enough. By the way, if you're into the Enneagram, I loosely correlated these to Enneagram 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So if you know your type, uh, this is usually where you'll fall. I'm never unique enough. I'm never safe enough. I'm never smart enough. I'm never fun enough. I'm never strong enough. I'm never brave enough. Every, anybody relate to any of those? I think if you're a teen, I think if you're, you know, if you have teens in the house, if, you're, if you don't have teens because they moved out of the house, or, like that's all in us somewhere. And let me just say, this is the critic speaking. It is not the critic who counts. Uh, we are here like just medieval enough to think that there is an actual enemy, a spiritual force that the Bible actually calls Satan, which means, do you know what Satan means? The accuser. So whether it's your voice or his voice in your head saying you are not enough, I am telling you it is not the critic who counts. And to use, to use uh, Brene Brown's words, it's those who experience love and belonging are those who feel worthy of it. But Jesus says in John 13, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. I think when we hear this, we often think about what we're being asked to do, right? Oh, yeah, we have to love like Jesus loved. We forget like the whole th point right there in the middle Love each other just as I have loved you. Jesus is saying here, I have loved you. I have seen you. I have seen you. I have known you. I am aware of all the not enoughs. Jesus says, I have loved you. I know that I am going to be betrayed by you, and I have loved you, and I will love you. It's not the critic who counts people. You want to know whose voice really counts? It's the voice of your creator. It's the voice of Jesus. It's the voice that says, I have loved you. That is where worthiness comes from. And that is where the, it's the only place, I think, that the courage can come to step into the arena. To love and to risk and to be vulnerable. And God knows there's going to be times when you're betrayed. And you're going to feel shame, and you're going to feel fear, and you're going to feel like you're not enough, and you're not accepted, but it's not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the one who is in the arena. So let's pray. Jesus, you are uh, so good to us. Your love is the thing that uh, nourishes us and sustains us, um, that fills us. So come now, Jesus. And I ask, uh, I ask that these things that were written might be offered up to you and that each person here would actually feel your divine pleasure and the worth that comes from that. Help us not only to love one another, 
but to experience your great love for us. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.